morning. Happy Sabbath, everyone. It's good to see you all. And uh, Karina, thank you for the uh, interesting talk. It's good to know that we are what we eat. And I am ice cream. <laughs> That's what I learned from that talk. And I need to be more broccoli. Um, today, we're going to be talking about nav- navigating negative emotions, navigating negative emotions. And uh, this, this talk really kind of stems from my own kind of I guess an experience that I'm kind of going through right now. Um, I think a couple months ago I talked about a similar topic, and this is kind of like an ongoing process for me. But um, I, I grew up in an Asian family, and for those of you who may not know me as well, um, my mother passed away when I was 15. And so through those formative years of growing up, it was kind of me, my dad, and my older brother. And so there's just a lot of testosterone in the house. And so the only time that we talked about our feelings were when we felt hungry. And um, and so that basically wasn't helpful when it came to developing emotionally. And uh, what I'm finding is right now, every now and then, I kind of come face-to-face confronted by my own emotions. And I kind of i have been asking myself, why do I feel the way that I do? Why do I have such strong negative emotions? And so I kind of wanted to share um, things that I've been learning and also just share from my own experience. But uh yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about how we process feelings in general. And uh, psychologists generally say there are two categories of emotions. Positive emotions, which consist of um, happiness, contentment, surprise. And then there are more negative emotions, which we generally try to shy away from, which are sadness, anxiety, fear, shame, and guilt. And shame and guilt are really very Christian negative emotions. Um, Generally, uh, those two emotions are are felt quite strongly um, in Christianity. Now, in many cases, we are socially trained to largely avoid negative emotions. I think the default mode is to be happy. Happiness is the norm, and when we don't face happiness, there's kind of this confusion of, hey, why, why are things not going my way? Now, there's a broad spectrum of how we respond to those negative emotions. And on one end of the spectrum, we have repression, where we suppress how we feel. Uh, Something negative happens, we're not able to communicate how we feel, and thus our needs are not met, and this perpetuates, and generally it drives a wedge between um, healthy relationships, which uh, then becomes isolation and separation. On the, other end the, on the other end of the spectrum, there's explosion when something relatively small happens, and then there's a sudden surge of emotion. Uh, someone says something or someone cuts us off on the road, and all of a sudden there's kind of like, yes, like there's kind of like a, a volcano erupts. Now, I think relationally there are different strategies that you can put in place in your relationships uh, to cultivate better communication to help with these situations of whether it's um, whether it's repression or uh, whether it's uh, explosion. But what I want to talk about today is things that we can do reflectively, things that can help us process emotion and those negative feelings internally. Um, and I'm just going to be exploring a little bit of that today. So I'm going to be talking about two different Bible characters that experienced uh, a high degree of emotional stress and just things that they go through, because I think that uh, these two stories are quite helpful. 
The first story is a story of Elijah. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16 verse uh, excuse me, chapter 16 to 19, I'm going to be narrating um, through a good portion of the story. 1 Kings chapter 16 to 19. And for those of you who have your World Changer Bibles, it's going to be page 292. And I'm just going to give a snapshot summary, and we'll probably be spending more time in the latter part of that section of passage. So there's a man by the name of Elijah. He is a prophet of God. He is a messenger of God who's been called to um, really send messages from God to the leaders of Israel. And what we're going to find in these four chapters is that Elijah has been in hiding for three and a half years. There's a three and a half year period where there's drought, there's persecution where the people of God are being martyred. Um, The economy is very poor. The people feel no hope and the monarchy is oppressive. And the monarchy consists of a king by the name of Ahab and Jezebel. Look at that fancy fancy, uh, clicker there. (laughs) I actually didn't know that was going to (laughs) happen. So 1 Kings chapter 16, if you look at verse uh, 29, it introduces Ahab and Notice how Ahab is introduced. It says, Abraham, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. So here Elijah is called to be a prophet in the time of the worst king in Israel's history. We're going to find out that things are just not going well. Well, in Elijah's ministry, God calls him to have this showdown between himself and the prophets of God. And that's this big picture here. And oh, excuse me, I'm going to try and... Okay, that didn't work. <laughs> anyway, okay. So he's called to have this showdown between himself and the prophets of Baal to determine who is the true God, whether it's ba- uh, Baal or Yahweh. And this showdown takes place in front of Israel and the king. And the result of this confrontation results in Israel siding with Elijah and they execute all the prophets of Baal. Now, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 19 and you look at the first few verses, we're going to see how the monarchy responds to this. So chapter 19, reading the first four verses, it says, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done including the way he killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life, and he went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, Traveling all day, he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So Elijah flees for his life. And this is kind of interesting because he fears death. He doesn't want to become a martyr. 
he doesn't want to do the deed himself. He doesn't want to kill himself. But at the same time, he goes to God and he says, please end my life. And I don't know if he thinks it's going to be painless if God does it. But anyway, that's kind of what's going through his mind. But you get a feeling of how Elijah feels. He's just had a difficult life. He's had a difficult ministry. And he just feels so bad, he just wants to end it all. He wants it all to end, excuse me. So he runs away, and he shuts down, and he cannot take it anymore. God, I can't take Ahab. I can't take Jezebel. I can't take ministry. Uh, I don't like confronting powerful, evil uh, monarchs. I don't like risking my life. I don't even want to, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. So my question would be, after someone like that speaks to God in that manner, how is God going to respond? What will God do when he hears his own prophet say, I don't want to be a prophet? Now, there are a few options that come to my mind. God could say, I am your strength. Go and be strong. Cop it in the chin. You can do this. Or he could say, Elijah, I just brought fire down from heaven. And all of Israel now believes in you and in me. You shouldn't be feeling this way. God could say, Elijah, suffering is a part of following me. It's supposed to be difficult. Now trust me. Here's how God actually responds. If you look at verse 16. Verse 16, God responds by saying, Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphath, from the town of Abel Mehola to replace you as my prophet. God says to Elijah, essentially, I hear you. I get that it's difficult. Now anoint a new king and anoint a new prophet to take your place. See, God doesn't paint a silver lining around Elijah's concerns. He doesn't invalidate Elijah's feelings. His response is, Yes, it's difficult. I get that. And now I'm giving you a solution to that. How good is that? It seems like God basically simply waves this magic wand or the miracle wand and all of Elijah's problems have now disappeared. I would love a prayer life like this. God, I am tired of all of my woes. And all of a sudden, ding, everything is just taken care of. But notice what happens. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 21, 1 Kings chapter 21, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 20. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 17 to 20. Now what's happened here is that Ahab and Jezebel are at it again, and there's a man named Naboth, and he has this really beautiful vineyard. And Ahab wants this vineyard so bad that him and his wife conspire together and they basically murder Naboth and they take his land. Verses 17 to 20, it says, But the Lord said to Elijah, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He will be at Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel, claiming it for himself. Give him this message. This is what the Lord says. Wasn't it enough that you killed Naboth? Must you rob him too? Because you've done this, 
he gets this very harsh judgment, as you can read through the rest of the passage. So here is Elijah doing the very thing that he doesn't want to do, casting judgment on the very people he's afraid of. If you go forward just a couple chapters, 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We see this again. It says, But the angel of the Lord told Elijah, who was from Tishbe, Go and confront the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is there no God in Israel? Why are you going to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to ask whatever the king will recover? Now, therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will surely die. So Israel went to deliver the mess, or excuse me, Elijah went to deliver the message. Again, Elijah is the bearer of judgment. And here's my question. If God has promised change to Elijah, why then is Elijah called to the same ministry? Why does Elijah listen? Why doesn't, he, why doesn't he say, God, you promised me there's going to be a change in power and there's going to be a change in profit. Why are you placing me in harm's way? When Elijah hits his low, he communicates to God his fear of death. He communicates how he feels that his life work is all gone to waste. And God responds to Elijah by giving him a future hope. Elijah, I get that your life is difficult. I feel your sorrow. I understand your frustration. And at that very moment, nothing changes for Elijah. Ahab and Jezebel, they're still in power. Elijah is still called to give really uncomfortable messages to powerful people that can, that can and want to hurt him. But he does it anyway. Because God gives Elijah a future promise. And this promise communicates to Elijah that God understands him. His feelings are validated. God practices empathy. And Elijah, feeling understood, then has the strength to move forward and do what God has called him to do. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, if you can turn there, notice the fulfillment of that future promise. God, uh, Elijah has called Elisha, and Elisha, sensing that Elijah is going to be separated from him, follows Elijah. And this is going to be confusing because Elisha and Elijah sound very similar. So Elijah is the one that we've been talking about. Elisha is the one that's taking his place. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha replied, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You've asked me a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. As they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. God fulfills his promise to Elijah. There's something powerful about the validation of our feelings and how we process our feelings and how we regulate how we express our emotion. There's another individual that I want to talk about, and that's Jesus. 
throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus uh, expressing a wide range of emotions. You see him appropriately expressing uh, emotion in specific circumstances. You see a high degree of compassion when he encounters the oppressed. You see a high degree of resilience when he is personally attacked. Here are a few specific examples. There's a story of Jesus walking into the temple, and he sees all these people um, trading temple currency for uh, different animals for sacrifice. And Jesus expresses anger when he sees the spiritual leaders have prioritized commerce over consecration in the temple. And you think, Jesus, meek, mild, and lowly Jesus. He's just kind to everybody. And yet in this situation, you see him angry, driving people out, tossing tables over. He expresses emotion. Then you see Jesus at Lazarus' grave. Here, in the grave of Lazarus, there's a very peculiar uh, story where Jesus knows, I'm going to raise this person from the dead. And you would think that it wouldn't bother him at all. And yet, here we see Jesus in this circumstance shedding tears. The text says that Jesus wept. And I am just not that emotionally in tune. So if I were Jesus, I would kind of look around and be like, don't worry, I got it. You know, like, just watch what I do next, right? And yet, here is Jesus touched by the emotions of those around him, and he then expresses emotion in response. And finally, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I think this is one of the most powerful stories in the Gospels where Jesus expresses emotion, connects with God, and moves forward with what God has called him to do. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Matthew being the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at a few verses from 36 to 46. It's page 797. Here, Jesus is going into this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And in this garden, there's this olive grove. (coughs) And he goes with his friends and he tells them in verse 36, sit here while I go over there to pray. So he takes Peter James and John, and he goes to this garden, and the text says that he becomes anguished and distressed. In verse 38, he told them, My soul is crushed with grief, even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now think about the words that Jesus chooses. Whenever Jesus is faced with people who are actually dead in the New Testament, he kind of asks the question, Why are you weeping? They're only sleeping. But when he references his own pain in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I am dying. Jesus here is emotionally feeling something that goes deeper than death, than physical death. In the next verses, we see Jesus going to God. And if you look at verse 39, he prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. It's so interesting for God the Son to tell God the Father, I don't want to do this. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says, I don't want to do this? Is he telling God, I'm not going to do it? 
If you look at the very next line, he says, not my will, but yours be done. See, he's not telling God, I'm not going to do this. What he's telling God is, this is really, really difficult for me. If you look at Luke chapter 22, verses 41 to 43, Luke adds a little bit of uh, information here. He says, he walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. And if you look at verse 44, it says that Jesus is sweating drops of blood. That's how um, intense those feelings are. That's how, uh, that's how in, uh, it paints an accurate picture of how much suffering Jesus is experiencing. And what I love about this is that Jesus feels separation from God because of the difficult thing that he is called to do, because of the circumstance that he is in, and yet God sends a physical angel to strengthen him. And I think this story kind of accurately portrays a similar uh, example of what happened with Elijah, where Jesus communicates, God, this is what I'm feeling, and in the midst of processing and expressing that negative emotion, he senses the presence of God near him. And in this particular case, there's a physical angel that kind of communicates something that encourages him. And I don't really know exactly what that angel would have communicated that would have brought him that sense of um, strength. But what we are given are different stories that are very similar that I think um, gives, sheds a little bit of insight here. If you go to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 31, there's a story of, Peter, James, and John once again going with Jesus to a mountain to pray. And in verse 29, it says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appear and began talking with Jesus. Now, it's very interesting that Moses and Elijah start talking to Jesus because Elijah, as we just read, was translated straight to heaven. And Moses, if we look through the Old Testament, Moses dies. And in the book of Jude, there's kind of this hint that Moses is resurrected. And so these, there are these two categories of people. One are Moses, who represents people who are going to die and be resurrected. Then there's a second group of people, which is represented by Elijah, those who are already alive and would be translated to heaven. And there's kind of like this mini picture of the second coming that is portrayed in Luke chapter 9. And it's almost as if Jesus prays and he knows, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to experience intense suffering. And God sends Moses and Elijah to remind Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you go through this, in the future, it gives hope to people like us. It gives hope to the righteous who are alive and remain when you return. It gives hope to the people who are dead and have the promise of resurrection. And so when you go through this, it gives us the opportunity of eternal life. Notice verse 31. It says, they were glorious, or excuse me, verse 30, uh, 31. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And so they're telling Jesus, you are going to suffer. And Jesus, having this... Um, Sensing the physical presence of God in different ways in his life 
has the strength then to move forward. So here are five things that I'd like to mention about processing our feelings with God. One is take our situation to God. I think oftentimes it's easy to keep our feelings to ourselves. Um, The other thing is that we're able to share our feelings with our friends for those of us who are more open. And I think both are okay. Uh, Both are really good, actually. But I think it's really important or it's different when we include God into our situation where when we have feelings of anxiety, fear, frustration, disappointment, that we actually go to God and say, God, this is how I'm feeling. And I think there's a a significant um, benefit to taking our feelings to God. And I'll explain more in just a second. So the second part of that process is exploring the emotions and the feelings that we have. Identify what we are actually feeling. It's amazing what happens when you actually know this is what is actually bothering me. And this was this has been kind of like a maybe like an eight year long journey for me where I remember when Jinha and I were first dating, something would happen and Jinha would ask me, Are you okay? And my response would be, I'm fine. And as the days would go by, as the weeks would go by, I would keep thinking about that situation and realize Actually, I'm not okay. And then I would go to Jinhan and say, hey, here's what I'm feeling. And she's like, that happened like a month ago. I'm like, I know, I'm really upset about it. And it was just identifying that feeling was such a, uh, it just felt very freeing. And so notice here in the Bible, it actually tells us to explore those feelings. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 19 says, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. So notice it talks about this opening up of our heart and pouring it out before God. Here's another interesting psalm. Psalm chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. And I think anger is kind of one of those emotions that we generally try to shy away from. And notice here the text says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Notice here the Bible says, be angry. Usually when we're angry, I I remember growing up being told, don't be angry, right? It's not okay to express those emotions. And here in, in scripture, it's actually saying, no, God actually instilled in you emotional equipment to feel. And as you feel, it lets you know something is right versus something is wrong. It's important to explore those emotions. Third step, bring scriptural insight into that process. So after we take our situation before God, as we're exploring our emotions and feelings, we're pouring them out before God, bring scriptural insight into that process. I find it's so helpful to think of a Bible text, to think of a story, to think of a situation that's in Scripture that kind of informs what I'm feeling. Um, one of the verses that have just been a tremendous help to me is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. And this is, We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham, i.e. humanity. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect 
like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. So notice this text is saying Jesus became human so that he could then understand what it's like to be human and then mediate on the behalf of humanity. In other words, God gets how difficult it is, and that's why he offers himself as a sacrifice, and then he mediates on our behalf. It's such a powerful thing to get that God understands you. He understands your difficulty. He understands your sorrow. He understands your frustration, your fear, your anxiety. You know, I mentioned that there were three of us guys that would grow up to, that grew up together, my dad, my brother, and myself. And whenever it came to this idea of understanding, that just did not exist. There was so much non-understanding that happened. Um, between my dad and myself, there's a language barrier, there's cultural barriers, and there's all sorts of different barriers. And so whenever it came to this idea of understanding, it just was non-existent. And so enters Jinha into my life. And she would repeat this one statement, you don't understand me. I'm like, no, I, I understand, I understand. I think the first argument, first major argument that we had revolved around whether or not she would come to Australia with me. I was finishing up my course at Andrews, and it was time for me to come back to Melbourne. And basically, uh, my conversation with Jinha kind of went like this. Hey, I really like you. Um, I would like us to be in a relationship together, but I have to move to Australia. Um, and she was like, so we're not even dating. You want me to leave my family, leave my job, and uh, leave my country and go to a strange place with you? And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. And she was like, uh, I don't know if I'm okay with that. I'm like, why? <laughs> well, we got together. We started a relationship. And every month or two, this argument would come up. And... She would regularly say, Roy, you don't understand me. And I would, I would regularly repeat, Melbourne is the most livable city in the world. Like, why would you not want to go there? Like, we're in love. Come on. And I, I remember for probably like a seven-month period, we just argued about this. Like, it just, it was a constant point, uh, point of tension in our relationship. And one time I was sitting um, in my room and I just kind of thought, yeah, I, it makes sense. Like, if she were to move to Australia, there's no sense of security. She doesn't know anybody. She has to completely trust in me. And at this point in time, I'm pretty much a stranger, even though we like each other and we care about each other. And I gave her a call and I said, hey, um, look, I get it. I, I, I get that this, this work that you're doing here in the U.S. is very important to you. I get that it's kind of like a dream opportunity. Um, I also get that your family's here, your friends are here, and it, it would be a big sacrifice if you were to come to Melbourne. And so, look, let's just do long distance. And in my mind, I was thinking, till Jesus comes, or, you know, we'll figure something out. But and anyway, I was like, we'll just do long distance, and we'll, we'll make it work. And Jinha's response to me then is, I'll come with you. Now, you would think that I'd be happy, but I was very frustrated. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, what did I say? What? How, how come you're coming now? What did we argue about for the last seven months? Like, I don't get it. And she says, Roy, you get 
you understand how difficult this is for me. And I now know I can trust you. And basically, she's communicating, I'll go with you to the moon, right? I'll go with you wherever you go. Because you get, you get what I'm feeling. And I know that I can trust my heart with you. When Jesus, when God gives us Jesus, and as he's hanging on the cross, what he's communicating to humanity is, I get how difficult life is. I get that you're not going to get it right. And that's why I'm dying on your behalf. I get the difficulty. I get the suffering. So then I, too, will suffer. And God is basically communicating, you can trust your heart with me. And regardless of what mistakes you have in your life or you've made in your life, I get it. So here's forgiveness. God understands us. And as we take our suffering, our anger, our frustration, our fear, our anxiety to God, God communicates, I get it. I get you. So whatever you decide to do from here on out, I'm providing a way out for you. Now I realize that sounds like I'm saying God gives license for sin. God is saying, you can do whatever you want and everything is okay. But what I am saying is that God says, I, in the cross, I get you. And I'm hoping that in the cross, you will understand me. That you will understand what sin does. You think about who Jesus is. The Bible says that he's the king of the universe. He is the creator of life. He is life personified. And yet, something kills him on the cross. And it's not the physical pain of death. It's not the loss of blood. He is God. What can kill God? And the answer is, sin can kill God. There's something so toxic, something so powerful that could extinguish life itself. That is sin. And so on the cross, Jesus is saying, I get you. Do you get me? Here's something that's so destructive. Will you let it go? Do you understand my heart? Do you understand my difficulty? Do you understand what sin does into the world? And as we enter into that relationship of understanding, something powerful, powerful happens. It's kind of like the birthplace of transformation. We've talked about taking our situation to God, exploring our emotions and feelings that we have, to bring scriptural insight into the process of our pain, into the process of our frustration, and then to acknowledge that God is for you. He's on your side. He's in the situation. In the story of Elijah and in the story of Jesus, there was a future promise that communicated God's presence. And for us, we have something powerful because there's an event, an historical event that took place in the past, Jesus dying on the cross, that communicates hope of a future promise, which is the second coming. And you know, that second coming resolves so many challenges, difficulties, the question of suffering. It is the resolution or the solution to the problems of today. And when we step, when we acknowledge the historical event and the future promise, it communicates that God is in our presence. It's in that process of taking that emotion to God that you know, our emotions can then be modified. We feel secure and confident. We are more honest with the situation. 
we learn to regulate our emotions. Uh, I had an incident uh, take place across the street uh, from my house where um, I've got a neighbor, and he's kind of, you know, there's unregulated parking throughout um, our street, and it's becoming more of a problem as the city is getting, or as the suburbs are getting gentrified, and basically it's just really busy. It's hard to find parking. And uh, I pull up to uh, the street in front of my neighbor's house because there's no parking on the other side. Um, And uh, the next day was rubbish day. And so my neighbor had strategically placed uh, his rubbish bins in the parking spot so that nobody could park in that parking spot, but made it seem like I'm placing it here so that my rubbish bins can get picked up. And so uh, I went and parked my car in front and then pulled the rubbish bins to the side where they could be picked up and then parked my car into the public parking spot. My neighbor then came out of the house and basically said, started yelling, like, why are you moving my rubbish bins? And he just kind of exploded a bit because he was tired of people parking in front of his house even though it was public parking. So he just he felt entitled, this is in front of my house, it belongs to me, even though he has multiple parking spots available to him elsewhere. And so I first tried to calmly respond this is public parking, and anybody can park here, and your bins will still be picked up the next day. And it just it started escalating and escalating, and Mike is in the car, and he's kind of like, is my dad going to get into a fist fight with our neighbor? And he's like freaked out of his mind, basically. So this situation escalates as um, Jinha is in the house, and there are a few people in this room who are also in the house, and... Um, they were going to go to an appointment elsewhere. And so my neighbor goes, fine, you're going to park in front of my house. I'm going to park in front of your driveway. So he hops in his car, pulls out of his driveway, and then blocks my driveway. And Jinha is now not able to pull out of the house, and his car is now there. And I'm kind of like, how does this even make sense? Like, you can pull out of your driveway. I can't pull out of my driveway. And I'm just, I'm so angry now. And he's like, you don't like it? Call the police. I was like, okay. So I called the police. And you get where this is going. So hours later, right, finally the police come. The guy has pulled his car out of the driveway. And it's just all sorts of boiling emotions. And, of course, I walk away from that thinking, man, like, I'm just very angry. <laughs> now, in that process, something interesting happened. One, I realized I'm not handling the situation well because it didn't have to escalate, and it escalated. Two, I also learned someone in the house that's a close friend came out and said, that guy is a jerk, right? And as soon as that was said, I just felt like so good because it validated my emotions. I'm like, he is a jerk, right? And... Nevertheless, it didn't make me feel good enough to know how to handle a situation where he didn't pull the car in front of my driveway and me have to call the police. And so anyway, as I'm processing this event, as, as a week goes by, I'm kind of thinking, God, this is why I'm frustrated. This is why I'm angry. And I'm going through these steps, and I, you know, in prayer, I feel God saying, Roy, I get it. I get that it's difficult. I get that you're angry. And like... This is why salvation exists, so that I can bring about healing and reconciliation. Like, you are forgiven for losing your cool, right? And I'm like, I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to be like this this example of holiness, whatever that means. And I just, uh, like, so, so angry and frustrated. And in that process, I'm like, 
feel, I feel forgiven. So now how do I honestly assess this situation? I'm like, you know, I live across the street from this guy. He's not going anywhere. (laughs) I'm not going anywhere. So what do we do now? And so I go to his house about, yeah, about a week later and um, he's in his, he's in his garage and I'm like, Hey, like, I just feel unsettled about what happened, you know, last week. And I just want to say that I'm sorry for, you know, how I handled myself. And he's like, no, 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 it's okay. It's a public parking spot. You're able to go, like, you know, you're allowed to park there. Please park park there. And I'm like, and then, like, we learn about, we we exchange names. I know about his family history. (laughs) And, and like, a couple days later, he comes over to my house with, like, this, with, like, uh, Bickies and cake from like the local pastry shop, and he's like, "Hey, this is for you." And I was like, "All right, we're like BFFs now. Like this is great." <laughs> and I just kind of look back on that situation and just kind of realize the value of knowing how to um, go through this process and really learn how to regulate uh, my personal emotions better. And um, I hope that it's helpful to you. I just wanted to share some additional resources with you. Um, the first resource that I want to talk about is Right Now Media. We have an account um, through the church. I'm just curious, how many of you are familiar with the resource, uh, resources available on Right Now Media? Okay, cool. Um, we hope that uh, it, w- our church does get charged a subscription to it. If you are not familiar with the content, let me know. I'm happy to send a, a, a login for you, and you can have access to Right Now Media. It's basically... Um, like Netflix for Christians. Any topic that you can think of that has to do with Christianity is on this website. Uh, one particular resource that I think is quite helpful, there's a guy by the name of Eric Johnson, and he's a professor of pastoral soul care at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's also an associate editor of Christian Psychology Magazine. And he puts together these different sessions on how to navigate and process your emotions, uh, particularly negative emotions. I found that was a very good resource. And there's a lot of other stuff on Right Now Media as well, and so that's available to you. Um, there's also ChristianCounseling.com, which has a lot of different resources on the website. Um, that's what the website looks like. And then the third resource is um, HealthDirect.gov.au. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the mental health care plan that's um, provided by the Australian government, but they provide up to 10 sessions with a psychologist at at highly discounted rates so that it's affordable for you wherever you're at. And so the government just makes it uh, makes it available to everybody in Australia to have access to proper uh, mental health care. And so this is the website that you can go to and you can explore the website and kind of um, have access to valuable resources there. Um, there's one other thing that I didn't put up there, but for those of you who have children, there's a book series called When I'm Feeling by Trace Maroney. And um, I forgot to put the picture up there, but um, it's a picture of a rabbit on this book series. And in this series, there are, I think, uh, like maybe nine or ten books. Um, and the books consist of When I'm Feeling Scared, When I'm Feeling Sad, Loved, Lonely, Kind, Jealous, Happy, Angry. And the book basically teaches parents how to communicate to their children how to process emotions. And I think it's something that's incredibly, incredibly valuable. And um, we've been trying to kind of go through this with our own children. And the kids love the books, uh, great pictures and great concepts. And so um, I, hope that, um, I hope that these are a blessing to you. May God bless you as you um, consider his word and consider your feelings.